0: This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm Will Brem. It's good to be back from summer vacation. Fresh Ed has had a busy holiday, putting together some great shows for you. We also built and designed a new website where we host the show's archives and post exclusive content related to each show. The website launched today, so please check it out at freshedpodcast.com. In our first show back, I'm excited to welcome Raywin Connell. Raywin is a professor emerita at the University of Sydney. She is a renowned sociologist, best known internationally for her studies on masculinity. I looked up Raywin on Google Scholar and found that she has over 56,000 citations. 56,000? To put that number in context, consider this. I have 118. In short, she's a big name who writes about important ideas. We're lucky to have her on the show today to talk about some of her latest thinking. In a recent paper for the University of Johannesburg, Raywin shared some of her thinking on the decolonization of knowledge. In many ways, she aims to rethink the history of knowledge, moving away from the northern bias in the mainstream social sciences and the colonial structures of knowledge itself. What currently exists as mainstream
1: social science is terribly impoverished because it doesn't access this enormous wealth of thinking, analysis, theory, concepts, and data that exists in the colonized and
0: post-colonial world. Raywin retired from her university chair at the University of Sydney in 2014. She has been an advisor to the United Nations Initiatives on Gender Equality and Peacemaking, and in 2010, the Australian Sociological Association established the Raywin Connell Prize for the best book in Australian sociology. Raywin Connell, welcome to FreshEd.
1: I'm glad to be here.
0: In a recent paper for the University of Johannesburg, you shared some of your thinking on the decolonization of knowledge. Now, for for you to decolonize knowledge, it must be colonized in the first place. So how do you see knowledge as being colonized?
1: Well, that's got um, a number of dimensions. Uh, it's a very live issue in South Africa at the moment uh, because of the Roads Must Fall uh, movement at University of Cape Town, but it's also been an issue around the majority world, the, the post-colonial world, for generations. In fact, um, and um, it, it, I mean, it's an issue now, of course, because of what's happened over the last four or five hundred years, as global empires have been created and then a, a global economy. Uh, with its center in the the rich countries of the global north. And parallel to that material economy, if you like, um, is an economy of knowledge uh, in which uh, information, concepts, ways of thought, methodologies, and so forth, all circulate and are exchanged And that has been very strongly shaped by the growth of empire and then the inequalities of the neoliberal economy. And that's what we're referring to when we talk about the colonization of knowledge or the uh, interconnection, if you like, between colonialism and the construction of knowledge. Uh, So we have now uh, in the world... Uh, an economy of knowledge, uh, a dominant knowledge formation, in which the colonized world has been very important historically, but hasn't controlled what's gone on. Um, And to the extent that uh, intellectual workers in the global periphery have been able to participate in recent generations, they fundamentally had to do so in the terms that are laid down by knowledge institutions in the global north, reflecting their point of view on the world and their historical experiences. So when we talk about the decolonization of knowledge, we're talking about the various ways in which that history and that current massive a structure of inequalities is, is being addressed and contested and slowly and in small steps uh, gradually changed.
0: So you, you say that it, empire and neoliberal economies are, are shaping uh, this dominant knowledge that is uh, colonizing knowledge around the world.
1: Absolutely, and that's a very familiar point actually in the history of science. So if you read, you know, (laughs) Darwin's Um Voyage of the Beagle, for instance, one of the most famous scientific documents ever written, where the young Charles Darwin sailed around the world with his British Navy survey ship and collected specimens and did geological observations and he looked at the famous finches in the Galapagos Island and looked at coral reefs and out of that um, over a long period of of reflection and maturation, but To a very significant extent, out of that experience came modern biology, the modern theory of evolution. Um, And you can tell that kind of story, or you can see elements of that kind of story in the history of many other scientific fields, too. Astronomy, for instance, you know, half uh, the heavens, if you like, are visible from the southern hemisphere the southern knowledge from the southern hemisphere has been quite important in particular fields of astronomy in the social sciences too I mean, this is in a way the the first way i came to uh, understand these kinds of issues because i'm a sociologist you look at the history of sociology we're given various myths about how it was all about modernization in europe and Weber and Marx and so forth, but actually, if you look back in the very early days of sociology, it was very largely about knowledge from the colonized world, which was built into a 19th century narrative of progress and what I call, you know, the image or the model of global difference between the primitive and the advanced, that then became the framework of all modern sociology up until about the time of the First World War. Um so the encounter between European colonizers and the the colonized societies has been really formative for the history of what we very unre- uh, inaccurately call western science in fact it's always been global science though in the last 2-300 years it's been essentially centered in the rich and powerful states of the global north.
0: And, and you said that oftentimes um, those people who are creating knowledge in the global south or in post-colonial states or even in colonial states, they are using the same framework and concepts that are developed by Western or, you know, what's seen as quote-unquote Western scientists. Can you give an example of of how that's happening?
1: Oh, well, um, if you like, uh, you know, stand in any country in the periphery and look around you and you'll see it. Um, uh, Not all knowledge producers are doing this, but this is the, if you like, the official knowledge formation in the university system it's what's recognized as science it's what's funded by government research funding agencies it's what the chinese have been building as they've restructured the um, university system you know i look around myself at the university of sydney here in australia and you know from in just about every direction I see people who are doing research, constructing knowledge within a framework of methods and theories, and you know what's observable and how you actually conduct yourself as a scientist that is you know something like ninety seven percent important from Europe and North America. Um, and And that's just typical of the official knowledge institutions globally. So that's why I talk about the, uh, the situation of global hegemony in the mainstream knowledge formation. So, I mean, again, if I can mention my own discipline of sociology, you look at the uh, local sociology journal, it's called Journal of Sociology. And you, you know, the typical article in it is by an Australian or someone from New Zealand, from the region. Um, and it will have data from Australia or New Zealand or the region. That's the typical article in our journal. But the rest, of the theoretical frameworks in which it's done, will be Bourdieu, Foucault, Giddens—you know, the the uh, modern masters of the global North—or uh, you know, Marx, Weber, and Durkheim. That is the official. Uh, founding fathers of the discipline mythological though that is um, and the methods that they will be following uh, will again typically not in absolutely every case but overwhelmingly the case the methods will be those that have been acquired from people who studied in American or European universities learnt to do surveys or qualitative analysis or whatever it may be um, from northern institutions or following northern models, that is regarded as proper scientific sociology. And if you operate in any other way, you are seen as... You know, not a proper, you are likely to be seen as somehow not a proper sociologist or doing something that's bizarre or extraneous to the real business of the discipline. And that, of course, is not peculiar to sociology. That's true of every discipline, uh, with perhaps the exception, if it is a discipline of post colonial studies where that exists, which isn't very often. Um, And the the little bits of the university where bits of indigenous knowledge begins to creep in. But that is very, very much marginalized. And in some parts of the university's work, for instance biomedical research, you don't find it at
0: all. Let's let's talk about some of these the the indigenous knowledge or, or these other other ways of conducting research using different methodologies and different theories than those found in the global north or in the west, particularly in Europe. Um, so, so can you describe some of these um, alternative ways of theorizing or using methods that are different than using Bordeaux or Durkheim?
1: Yeah, well, the first thing you'd say is that the, um, the, the very idea of constructing research of conducting research is if you like embedded currently in the dominant knowledge formation so for instance people in indigenous communities in Australia who are regarded as bearers of knowledge would typically not see themselves as researchers Uh, they would see themselves as bearers of knowledge wisdom know-how the knowledge will actually include a great deal of empirical knowledge, empirical information, data uh, about their country, about their social relationships, about their people. Um, that will be part of their knowledge, but it is not organized in the form of a research enterprise where you publish results and peer-reviewed journals and so on and so forth. Um, so we have to always understand that knowledge formations are social processes social constructions which have an institutional base and the the modern university um, is with certain interesting exceptions but uh, overwhelmingly this is true is institutionally organized around the northern dominated <laughs> research-oriented knowledge system that we think of as, quote, Western science, unquote. Um, So we're looking at different knowledge practices, uh, sometimes different institutional bases. Uh, If we think, for instance, of another kind of knowledge formation, that is Islamic knowledge, Islamic science... Uh, we're looking at a different institutional history because the ulama, the Islamic scholars, uh, have historically been organized in different kinds of institutions from the European University model, although there's now an attempt, uh, of course, for the last 100 years or so, there have been attempts to synthesize these in the Islamic world, not in the Christian world. Um, and... um and so you get a, 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 a you know, a, a certain institutional pluralism in that kind of context. If you're looking at indigenous communities, say in South America, or Australia, or the Pacific Islands, uh, you're looking at groups who have not historically had um, large knowledge institutions. Um, on the, either the um, Islamic or the European model. Um, and there, the institutional basis of knowledge is likely to be ceremonies, age gradings, cohorts, communities uh, of a different shape. Um, this all makes it a little difficult to pluck out of those contexts a kind of abstracted knowledge, label it, indigenous knowledge and say, okay, we can take this as our framework and start publishing in mainstream European or North American journals. Uh, that model doesn't uh, seem to work, uh, or at least it's very hard to, to get working. Um, it's not totally out of the question. I mean, there are people who try to do this, for instance, picking up some theories from the uh, Islamic scholar Ibn Khaldun uh, from the Maghreb, Northwest Africa, some hundreds of years ago as a kind of classic social theorist and trying to do analysis of contemporary problems in the kinds of terms that he was working out. Um, There are some people who do that, but that doesn't have a major presence uh, either in Islamic scholarship or in the... the the uh, research oriented mainstream.
0: I think I think it is interesting that you know it's oftentimes we try and contrast the Western science with this quote unquote indigenous science as if it's the same sort of you know body that body of knowledge that can be you know in a sense take over Western knowledge. But really, you're saying that there's there's all sorts of different ways that that knowledge is formed and economies of knowledge operate Um, Mm and and
1: and and we should yeah we we should not be surprised at this because you know this is also true in the global north Um, there are you know there is this formal knowledge system in the education system and in um the um uh, you, you know uh, organized in uh, at the peak level in, in the universities research institutes and so forth but there are, are other knowledge formations in the societies of the global north too uh, there are local knowledge formations uh, ways of, of thinking, ways of knowing, ways of understanding the natural world that you find for instance in rural communities in Europe uh, or North America um that uh, that don't correspond in any simple way to the uh, the mainstream knowledge institutions so it's it's not this is not the west versus the re- the rest uh, at all um, although there are power relations and there is a when I talk about a knowledge economy uh, this is not exactly a metaphor I mean there, there are actually flows and exchanges. Uh, going on, and the main pattern of that, which was pointed out uh, particularly by West African philosopher, whom I greatly admire, uh, called Pauline Antongi, Um the main pattern of the global economy of knowledge is much the same as in the material economy, that is, the majority world serves as a source of raw materials, uh, just as in the the material economy, uh, you know, there's a a production of minerals, uh, oil, um, agricultural products, crops, and so forth, which is shipped to the global north to supply the uh, way of life there. Um, So there is a flow of data, uh, usually fairly raw, sometimes more processed, uh, and that's a, a form of contestation that goes on now as to how much knowledge producers in the global periphery are able to control the development of and processing of knowledge. Uh, for instance, in the AIDS area, area of AIDS research, now dominated by biomedical uh, researchers, though with a strong presence of social sciences too, um, there there is uh, there are uh, in fact contestations going on in southern Africa which has the highest burden of HIV infection in the world over exactly this point uh, because the dominant uh, northern model of biomedical research for AIDS now involves very tightly controlled uh, very large multivariate uh, trials of different forms of drug treatment uh, of HIV infection and the old model for this has been that uh, this was these are very expensive kinds of research to do uh, they were f- the only two sources of funding on that scale are governments in the global north such as the Centers for Disease Control in the United States or drug companies uh also in the global north. Uh, And they want, therefore, if they're paying for it, they want to control it. But this collection of data absolutely relies on knowledge workers in southern Africa um, who have been claiming more and more that their expertise and their uh, labour is central to this place process. They should have a great deal more control and responsibility and recognition in it than has been given them in the past, so there you've got a kind of contestation about the inequalities of knowledge production that's going on in this, uh, you know, if you like, heartland area of biomedical research, and this is not exactly a confrontation between indigenous knowledge and uh, and Western science. Uh, it's within broadly uh, the framework of biomedical research, but it's recognizing the global dimension of this and the multiple players and forms of expertise that are involved in producing mainstream forms of knowledge.
0: It seems, it seems quite similar to the um, example of, that you used earlier on Albert Einstein and his, and his work in the Portuguese colonies.
1: Yeah, well, Albert himself did not go there. Uh it's a lovely story actually. Um and one that we don't think of, I mean when you think of nuclear physics uh or relativity theory, cosmology and so forth as the most northern and and abstract and pure science stuff. Um and indeed Albert who, you know, developed the first version of the the Theory of Relativity when he was working in Switzerland, and then went to Germany when he was working on general relativity, published his uh, you know, famous uh, papers on general relativity in the middle of the First World War. Um, and um, uh, because science uh, is a little more international than national politics, this was read by scientists. In Britain, and when Germany, you know, was defeated in the First World War, prostrate, lost all its colonies, lost everything, it was British scientists who worked out the way to test Albert's theory, through which predicted the deflection of light under gravity, uh, something that in Newtonian uh, cosmology was impossible, but. Uh, Einstein not only predicted it, but worked out how much it would probably be mathematically. And it was British scientists who then thought, aha, uh, there's a solar eclipse coming up, which we can observe from the South Atlantic. Um, So they set up observatories, uh, one in some Portuguese-controlled islands off the coast of of Africa, and the other one on the other side of the South Atlantic in Brazil, which of course is a Largest former Portuguese colony did their observations, took these very famous pictures of uh, the sun being eclipsed, and uh, lo and behold, the star, the images of the stars near the surface, uh, whose light passed near the surface of the sun, of the sun was deflected about as much as Einstein's theory had predicted. That was the first. Gra- that was. That experiment made was what made Einstein world famous, and it was knowledge that came from the colonized and post-colonial world. Um, and without, you know, uh, that connection, the theory of relativity would not have been tested in in that way. Um, so, I mean, that's a, a quite startling example, if you like. <laughs> of the global dimension in what is conventionally called Western science. But so many fields of knowledge have, have absolutely depended on flows of data and behind them certain forms of expertise, sometimes practical, sometimes knowledge work in the global South. Um, what we're really looking at then is a an international knowledge economy where wealth and authority are centered in the global north, but where that those institutions of the global north still, to a quite striking degree, depend on data flows from the rest of the world. Think of climate science. Think of all these climate models that have been so central to political debate about climate change in the last, you know, 10, 15 years. Where do you think the data from them come a great deal of it comes from the global south.
0: So do you see any countercurrents in terms of the flow of knowledge?
1: Yeah. Um, there, look, there, there's always been contestation um, of, of these processes. Uh, there's always been a degree of dependence by the northern, and this is not just a simple northern-dominant southern subordination scenario, So northern science, if you like, northern controlled science operating in the South has always depended on practices, knowledge, institutions, and so forth in the global South. So there's a sort of dependence there. There are also, there have been uh, many appropriations, partial appropriations and changes of um, so-called Western thinking, Western concepts, theories, and methods uh, in countries that were under uh, colonial or semi-colonial influence. Uh, you know, there's a whole history of that in India, there's a history of that in China, which was not directly colonized, but was quasi-colonized for 50 or 60 years, uh, and where a whole couple of generations of intellectuals, you know, address themselves to adapting uh, European knowledge systems for Chinese use, something that's still going on, um, and there has been, um, and this is something that I, uh, you know, centre uh, my discussion on in in the book Southern Theory. Um, there is theoretical work that goes on in the colonised and post-colonial world. So, although the mainstream knowledge formation has a division of labour where theory and method are developed in the global north, and data gathering occurs around the global periphery. What that does, actually, is ignore the production of concepts, methodologies, and analyses by the intellectuals of the colonized world. And when you go looking for it, uh, which, of course, most Uh, conventional research in the social sciences doesn't do, but when you go looking for it, there's a really rich literature of social analysis uh, from the colonized and and then the post-colonial world. So there's a rich tradition of cultural analysis and debate in India, in the Arab world, in the Islamic world more generally. There's fascinating Intellectual debates and analyses, soci- sociological reasoning, in Iran, for instance, influenced by Shia Islam, um, and you know, in in uh, colonised and post-colonial Africa, in Latin America. I mean, these are rich sources of ideas, uh, theories, and debates uh, about society, uh, which has historically been marginalized from mainstream social science, but are there and are in various ways beginning uh, to contest the current situation. Um, So, yeah, look, there's, there's always been contestation around this uh there's probably more contestation now, I think, certainly in the social sciences there's something of a movement going on in social science at the moment uh, of a decolonial decolonizing um, southern uh, perspective uh, kind. Uh, it still hasn't you know uh, come to uh, you know, uh, uh, be a dominant form of thinking in social science yet, but it's certainly a, a, a lively presence at the moment.
0: So this may sound like a stupid question, um, but where would you find the ideas that you were talking about in terms of Southern theory in, say, India or Iran? Like, are these ideas that are, are inside national uh, research journals or do they appear in other places? Um,
1: Well, as I tell my students, no questions are stupid, (laughs) though sometimes the answers are. Um, uh, You you can find um, some of this in academic journals, um, but not a great deal. Uh, Why? Because uh, academic journals are characteristic, uh, you know, institutional form of the dominant knowledge formation. And the tendency in, you know, if you look at a, again, because I'm a social scientist, I know this be, this field best. If you look at a social science journal published in India or China or Australia um, or South Africa, you will typically find that, mm, that structure that I suggested before, that is northern theory, southern data. Um, but you may also find some contestation of that. Uh, You may find some writing, you will find actually some writing about local intellectuals who have moved outside that framework. When I've gone looking for this kind of material, I've looked very, you know, very widely indeed. I've gone way outside conventional academic sources. Um, I've haunted secondhand bookshops. Uh, I've browsed uh, libraries um, I've looked for genres which would not, uh, you know, normally occur um, in a um, um, in the bibliography of a mainstream social science journal article. So, for instance, some really quite interesting social analysis by a, a guy like uh, Shariati, uh, Ali Shariati. Uh, in Iran uh, is in the form of a sermon. Um, there is uh, a, a considerable amount of social analysis in books that might be thought of as political polemic. Um, let me give two examples of that by people who are very famous in their own area, though not widely known in the global north. One is Ambedkar, who uh, was the, you know, the the moving spirit behind the writing of the Indian Constitution after independence. A very important figure. Um, he uh, published uh, uh, an analysis of the caste system, which, incidentally, was very critical of Gandhi, um, whom Ambedkar thought was. Uh, not serious about uh, contesting the caste system and the ex- social exclusion uh, of the the under underneath castes, um, and uh, that I think is a very interesting document from the point of view of social analysis of stratification studies. In fact, um, go to another continent. Uh, to Southern Africa again, going back into history, Ambedkar's uh, stuff that I'm thinking about was written in the 1930s. Uh, go back to the time of the First World War. Uh, there's a remarkable book called Native Life in South Africa, written by Sol Plaatje, published in 1916. Um, so Plaatje was a younger um, contemporary of. Kleinman Weber Mm. Um, this book is not the story of an African farm uh, or an ethnography of a native community it's actually an analysis based on field research uh, of the impact of uh, laws passed by the South African Union government a few years before called the, the Native Lands Act which were basically appropriating indigenous land for white commercial farmers. Uh, so this was a massive land grab and uh, forcing black families off their ancestral lands to create a prosperous agricultural capitalist economy in South Africa. Plaatje was the secretary of the organization that later became the African National Congress, i.e. the current government of South Africa um and he bicycled around the country because of course he didn't own a car um and uh collected the the uh, doing field work uh, collecting the narratives of the families who'd been forced off their lands and wrote it up in this book together with an account of the political processes involved um and the book was then published in England in an attempt to influence the british government to uh, to override this legislation which it conspicuously failed to do um that's a marvelous piece of social analysis and social research it's really i think a classic of world sociology you never hear about it in mainstream sociology mainstream histories of sociology you know because it's written in a different genre in a colonized part of the world by a black guy whom no one in the mainstream ever heard about um so I mean those are just two examples you I could give hundreds. Um and um uh, it just seems to me that you know what what currently exists as mainstream social science is terribly impoverished because it doesn't access this enormous wealth of thinking, analysis, theory, concepts and data um that exists in the colonized and post-colonial world.
0: And and it's interesting that you show that it exists historically and also in the present moment. There's plenty of, of work go- being done. Um, so are, are you hopeful that universities that produce the dominant knowledge that's quote unquote Western science, are you hopeful that those institutions will change to begin to incorporate some more of this southern theory or the indigenous knowledge. All the different examples that you've talked about today.
1: Hmm. I um. I blow hot and cold on this. I have to say. Sometimes you know when when a discussion of them are, of, of these issues occurs. Um. I I think yeah. Um, mainstream institutions can do this. And are beginning to pay attention um, and um, you know hybrid institutions that combine say the university form with indigenous knowledge or with southern theory are coming into existence so for instance a, a group of indigenous universities have recently been founded in Bolivia um, and there's more of this kind of work going on in Ecuador uh, that I know of, and there are uh i know a uh, similar kind of work being done in Aotearoa, new zealand um, so and and every now and again we have a you know a panel or a debate or a plenary session on decolonizing knowledge or post perspectives in social science in a mainstream conference. In fact, next month, um, I'm actually going to be speaking at the Nordic Sociological Association meeting in Finland precisely about these issues, so there is interest in them. On the other hand, <laughs> um, universities in some ways are getting more conventional and narrower as they are more tightly integrated into the neoliberal global economy, as they are more university education is more commodified, Uh, universities like mine uh, here are getting to operate more and more like a profit-making corporation and becoming more and more obsessed with their position in global league tables um, and which uh, according to conventional wisdom will determine their capacity to attract fee-paying overseas students and thus get lots and lots of money and to appear well in the global league tables, you have to have published people who are publishing in the most prestigious mainstream journals. Where are the most prestigious mainstream journals? In North America, Britain, and France.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and uh, so there's now a quite serious institutional pressure on researchers in countries like Australia to focus their publishing on... Global North outlets, which means, of course, you have to publish within the conventions of knowledge, uh, using theories and methods that are familiar to the editors and reviewers for Global North journals. Uh, which means that, you know, southern theory, indigenous knowledge, alternative universalisms—all these uh, formed other knowledge formations—are nowhere. Uh, they're going to be squeezed out. The the more the neoliberal commodification of universities advances. So look, there, there's a struggle going on. It's it's often an implicit struggle um, between democratic, what I see as democratic impulses in teaching and uh, and knowledge production, and the you know, forces of hierarchy, commodification and convention on the other side. Um, And I don't actually, you know, I find it very hard to predict what's going to happen. It may be that there will be a growing split um, with a a kind of shrinking, narrow, uh, hierarchy-obsessed body of elite universities on the one hand, and a more democratic, responsive, but less well-resourced higher education um, system on the other. That's one possible future.
0: Well, Raywin Connell, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed.
1: Glad to be here.
0: Raywin Connell is Professor Emerita at the University of Sydney. After editing the show, I thought of an additional question I should have asked Raywin. How does someone like me, who has been trained in mainstream science since kindergarten, venture into indigenous knowledge, alternative universalisms, and southern theory? Raywin was kind enough to respond to my postscript question by email. You can find her answer online at freshedpodcast.com. Next week I speak with Angelo Gavrilatos on Bridge International. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. FreshEd contributors include Rolf Straupar, Eric Lehman, Brent Edwards, Chrissy Monahan, and Aaron Baxter. Original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interview not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. Be sure to visit us at freshedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.